This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. All right, hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So for those of you who have been following along from the last three episodes of this season so far, I've been sharing the intimate details of my own journey, along with my good friend Nick Steiner, as we've gone around to visit a number of our clients' projects in the south of Portugal, and both gather essential data to inform our process, and actually then put that process into action, implementing water retention features. Now we've seen some examples for farms facing droughts, and rural communities facing wildfire, and working to recover from it. Building on that, in last week's episode with Aline from La Casa Integral, I also explored what severe drought in my local community looks like, and explored the actions, both ecological and community-oriented, that could set ourselves on a new path. Now, though water cycle restoration will always be a theme on this show, today's episode is going to wrap up this personal deep dive for a little while. Now, I believe that regular reflection on one's learning process is essential to continued progress, and today I'm going to be joined by two people that have been major figures in my own learning and growth. That would be Nick Steiner, of course, and Zach Weiss. Now, Nick is, of course, the founder of Permanic Water Solutions, and Zach is the founder of Elemental Ecosystems, a project implementation company, and Water Stories, his online teaching and community platform focused on building water solution awareness and education. Now, since both of them have appeared on this show quite a number of times in the past, I'm going to skip over their introductions, and instead, I've linked to the previous episodes with them in which we explore their backstories in case that's information that you guys want. Now, today, we're having this conversation at a very important point for a couple of reasons. Now, Nick and I had just submitted our final project report in order to complete the professional certification, the highest tier of completion through the Water Stories training course. And also, Zach and the Water Stories organization have just opened their training once again to new applicants. So together, the three of us reflect on our different learning journeys to get where we currently are. We discuss in depth both the obvious and the less apparent skills that we each believe is essential for effective work in this space and in order to develop ourselves as true regenerative actors. Each one of us talks about our personal turning points and aha moments, as well as mentors and growing pains, and areas in which we still need to improve that have marked our own journeys. We cover different roles and responsibilities in the space of water restoration, and how designing and installing ecosystem features is only one aspect of this work which we have a common passion for, but we also recognize the need for so many other skill sets, experience bases, 
and focuses that are required to bring regeneration to the scale that is really needed. I also really recommend that you listen to this one all the way till the end when Zach gives us a brutally honest review of Nick and I's final project submission and he critiques our work with no filter. But before we jump into the discussion, I'll quickly say that if you feel motivated to take the next steps as an advocate for water restoration, whether that be as a knowledgeable awareness builder or someone who is focused on transforming a particular piece of land, or as a professional practitioner who travels installing water designs for clients, I've put the links to sign up for this year's Water Stories courses, both on the show notes for this episode at regenerativeskills.com and on the Regen Skills Instagram account in our bio. Now, in case this isn't the right time for you, or you're not able to find a program that works with your budget, you can actually still join their community for free, where all of us are active there, and you can ask questions and get connections and advice from knowledgeable professionals all over the world. There's really something for everybody in there, and you'll find that link in all of the same places I just mentioned. So with that out of the way now, let's reflect on our learning journeys with me, Zach, and Nick. Awesome. All right, so welcome, Nick and Zach. It's great to talk to you guys again. We've been in conversation at different levels for quite a while now. And for anybody listening, your intros and your bios and stuff can be found in one of the many other podcast episodes that we've all recorded together. So I'll leave it to them to, to hear about that. Today, though, I would love to explore this ongoing area of exploration that all of us are in at various levels. And that's the skill sets both interpersonally and in development of becoming effective workers in watershed restoration and landscape hydrology in general. Now, Zach, you have, of course, a ton more experience than Nick and I, and for that reason, we've been in your course and have been working to develop our own skills through partly your mentorship and your online courses. But I would love to explore kind of the full range of what is required to be effective in this field. And to start us off, maybe, Zach, can you tell us what have been some of the most impactful things that you have learned in your journey to get where you currently are? Oh, man, there's been so many. And you raise really a big, important question in that it's not just one thing that you have to learn. There's all of these different pieces of the puzzle to actually implementing projects. I think for me, the first real one is just opening the doors to the possibilities. What possibilities are out there. What are people doing? These are the stories that people just know way too little about from reviving rivers, reducing temperature, restoring deserts to lush landscapes, preventing fires. I mean, the list just goes on and on of all the possibilities. And so I think becoming aware of what's possible, that's kind of the first light bulb moment that people have. I wonder what was that moment for each of you guys? I think I had multiple coming mostly through youtube videos i think so the albeda project with neil speckman and then also since i'm coming mostly through this permaculture lens from 10 years ago the greening the desert videos that jeff lock put out and there's countless other examples but that for me was really just like oh wow it is possible to re-green even the driest and most degraded places and from there on for me everything else is kind of easy. Well, it's most certainly not easy, but if it can be done there, it should be possible everywhere. And that just keeps me motivated. Um, yeah. On a, on a daily basis. Is it similar for you, Oliver? How, how was that in your experience? Yeah. Mine was a little bit different. I think both of you guys know that I started in my focus in natural building. 
and came to ecological understanding a little bit later or kind of through that lens. And it was interesting because I had teachers and mentors that used a lot of the same principles of understanding ecology through understanding the built world. And I lived in places during my apprenticeships that were off-grid in the desert, essentially. And those were the first times that I really recognized how important water is to everything in your life. And as soon as water is scarce, it becomes a focal point of everything that you do and everything is navigated around your access to it. And so even before I started getting into ecosystem restoration or even planting gardens, it was, okay, how do we wash our dishes in a way that still makes sure we have drinking water next week? And how can we design the infrastructure of a home, regardless of the materials that it's built with, but with an understanding of the access that is available for water and how it is recycled into all other uses and then goes eventually away from the site in a way that isn't lost or wasted. And as I started to learn more about ecology, ecosystem restoration, farming and such, that, that focal point of water came with me and realizing that everything that is alive requires water for some activation, even in the craziest examples of like, go to those water bears, the ones that can stay dehydrated in space for a certain amounts of time. It's like, yeah, okay, they can technically not die without water, but none of their life focus or uh, their ability to thrive or grow is possible without water. And that's, that's the most extreme circumstances. So this really being the aspect that everything else revolves around has created as a focal point in, in my own learning since that point. And so building on the ideas that maybe stood out for us and then going into the first observations when we're going on to, let's say, a client's land or a new project, the observations that we're gaining, the process of reading the landscape. Zach, how does this start for you? And do you have like a checklist of things you're looking for, uh, a sequence of events that you go through? How does this process look for you? Yeah, this is such a big, important process. I think it's, to me, the key difference between projects that achieve good results and projects that don't, whether they do this piece well. And I think it's something where everyone says, observe your landscape, read your landscape, but no one tells you what to observe, how to observe, how to connect with it. And it's kind of a glaring weak link and, and part of why we created our course so that you understand it's not about reading the contours of on a map. The language of the landscape is a language older than words. And we as humans are set up to receive all of that information very clearly, uh, but we have to use our senses to do it. And so often we're so visual and so in our brains that we'll kind of decide everything before using our ears, before using our nose, before using our feet to feel what the soil is like. And so for me, I always, you know, people always want to know, oh, what can you do from afar? I have no ideas when I look at a map. I mean, I can see like very big, gross concepts, but you really, to me, you have to get there to feel it, to experience it, walk all of the boundaries first to understand what's in the land and what's not in the land. See where's water coming in, where's water going out, what state is that water in, how is it traveling? And even if it's not traveling presently, you can read it in the erosion and the differences it creates on the land. So then you can walk all the water flows on a landscape, understand what's happening there. And through this process of just walking around, settling yourself into the landscape. I always tell people, I'm not going to have any advice for you at the beginning. 
I'm learning your landscape. I'm just absorbing. I'm going to be asking questions, asking questions. The whole first day is just going to be asking questions and observation to then build enough of an understanding of this landscape to make recommendations that are actually in tune with that. And so whether you're paying attention to, you know, things like animal trails will tell you so much on a property, where the water sources are, where the food sources are. These are little things that you can't see from a map. You wouldn't necessarily think are even important to water. But if you notice where the animal trails are, that's going to lead you to the important places on that landscape. And then by understanding those, by feeling the soil, by smelling it, by tasting it, I do that a lot as well, which people think is weird. Uh, but by using all these senses that we have, we can really start to understand the landscape in a way that goes beyond our theoretical conceptual understanding of it. And really, we start to intuit a bit of the landscape, which I think is a scary process for people, especially with like a more engineering, pragmatic background. But, you know, there's something clearly there. And if we take the time to go at an observation with a blank mind, not try and put our ideas on it right away, but first just be a blank slate to absorb, then we can actually really understand this landscape and do things that are in accordance with it. So you guys just went through this whole process on a landscape, also with some ideas beforehand from maps. I'm wondering what were some of the big things that were different as you walk around and observe this landscape that either you didn't anticipate beforehand or it just totally shocked you? Well, that's a good question. I actually could give that one over to Nick because A, he's really good with maps and B, we went through the reading the landscape process for a couple of clients recently in Portugal. And if anybody wants to hear the process of that, there's the couple previous episodes where we go into detail. But Nick, yeah, go ahead. Tell me about the big differences in going through the maps and then being on the landscape. Yeah, I think this this always happens, and I'm so grateful for, for taking the course and not relying on maps too much and communicating that before, because I looked at all the topographic data and, and analyzed it, and there are these uh, kind of pinch points, or sometimes we call them now the aquapuncture points, so those tiny points where with a bit of earthwork you can store a lot of water. And so this is kind of where I focus on in the very rough concept map. So also we communicated with the clients like, hey, we can give you a super rough idea of what might be possible in this landscape, but it will definitely not be anywhere near what we actually do in the end. And so this process worked really well compared to kind of the previous approaches of making a master plan that takes months and then you come on land and you realize, hey, this is not going to work. And there are a few spots on the landscape where just from looking at the map, there would have been great points to put in earthworks. But then we walked there, we checked it out, and we realized, wow, this does not work at all. Like either this is this is way too steep, or then we had another spot and it's like, there's no clay here at all. So it it always happens. And and sometimes we had perfect idea, but then there is a cork oak there and they are protected in Portugal. And it would be exactly in the middle of the key of the dam. And every time this happens now. So I think it's helps me at least look at, at topographic maps and kind of design a little bit from that perspective to already get an idea of what the landscape roughly looks at. But then I love just being on site and looking, ah, this is this valley or this is this spot. And then really only putting in features after being on the ground. And sometimes with clients, it's, you know, I, I need to steer them away from providing them a fancy map up front. And so that's also an interesting process where remotely, I mean, I live on Tenerife on island. 
So for me, if I could work 100% remotely, that would be perfect. But I just have to tell them like, hey, I can draw you a pretty map. You're never going to implement it like this. So it's not really worth it. Let's just do a concept. We go out there and then we actually do the, do the real thing. Yeah, but maybe also from our last projects, what were the biggest differences you saw? I'm, I'm not sure. You didn't really look at too many maps before we visited, right? Or how was no, it for you? I didn't too much ahead of time. I mean, I liked seeing some of the concept drawings that you had come up with from the, the project where we did the implementation. And I'm someone who really loves to absorb information through maps, partly because it's just a beautiful way of visually communicating things. But I kind of like to make them from what I see on the landscape, because like Zach was saying before, there's a level of detail and there's certain things that will never be reflected on there. But because I like to draw as well, I can draw them into the maps that otherwise wouldn't have them. And I make these kind of unique kind of Franken communication maps that have unique information and my way of transmitting it into a visual representation that, that are really effective for me to go back on. Like I'm never gonna read through all my notes, for example, if I write them down, it's just not how I get a lot of information. So in that way, maps are, are super useful, but uh, like I can remember, it actually wasn't one of the projects we went to in Portugal, but one of the first times it really stuck with me, the importance of, walking through waterways was after like I had recently moved to Spain and there was a waterway near where our apartment was and I was down by that area and I saw these huge buildups of organic matter and brush at like halfway of a tree and I was like oh I know exactly what that is that was the previous high level mark when it was flooded and nobody's going to tell you that otherwise but there's incredibly cool little indicators, some of which that you were able to help me understand when we were out in Italy together, Zach, about the way that sediment deposits in certain layers and the, the level line of where that water was previously. And I mean, there's just so much cool stuff and it's always new. Anywhere you go, there's something new to learn. And I'm like a kid in a candy store these days when I walk around, like going hiking has taken on a whole different dimension. You know, whether it's for clients or whether it's just for fun, I'm going to a new area. The level of interaction and understanding has been completely transformed for me. And this goes along with one of the other skill sets on any level of design that I have become obsessed with recently, which is understanding the context and the scope of a project. And to me, this really marks the difference between people who design regeneratively or who just tick the boxes for features that are permaculture approved or green or sustainable. And that's understanding the very unique aspects of both the clients, the land, the time frame in which we are, the communities that are represented in that area, and also the scope in the sense of like, where are we in a history sense? Where did this come from, both in, in the stories and the lives that brought us to the place where we currently are now, to the economies that have shaped the way that it has developed and the reason why the infrastructure is done this way, or even the policy and the governance that allows you to do certain things and doesn't. And I have been learning to look at these scopes and these levels of context in a way that I just had no idea about before. And I'm curious, Zach, how does this influence the way that you design, the way that you put in projects? This is huge. You know, I always describe it the exact same landscape, but two different people. It should be totally different. Hmm. And the exact same person, but two different landscapes, and it should be totally different. 
And there's all these factors that are just easy to miss until you really start reading the landscape and understanding. Like, for example, you saw that flood debris. Mm. You can now know that that water used to be up at that level, at least at times, at a previous state. And now you can start to understand the historical context of that place. I think a lot of times people look at some of the things that we do and think that it's really heavy handed. But if you don't build it into the historical context where we've lost 87% of our wetlands globally, and those wetlands will not fix themselves. You know, in, in certain climates, you clear cut a forest, the forest will eventually grow back and fix itself. When you drain a wetland, that will never become a wetland again until humans do something or beavers do something or some major geological activity happens. And so we're kind of in this situation where we need to understand, in a lot of cases, we're looking at drains that were put in a landscape at a time when the climate was more stable. And those drains maybe improved agricultural production at that time. Now they're resulting in this flood, drought, fire cycle. It needs to be undone, both for this specific landscape and for other landscapes. And so factoring in the historical context of place, I think that oftentimes gets overlooked and is a really important piece. And that also can tell you, you know, sometimes I go to a place and I say, you don't need to do anything here. This is working. This is functioning. No, that's rare. But there, that now you can make that proclamation as well if you really understand the historical context of this place. And then when it comes down to the context of the people, gosh, that can look so different. You know, whether you're working for one of the wealthiest people in Europe or the Department of Defense in the United States or villages in Mozambique what you actually do is entirely different. If we just came in and said, okay, we're going to build our swales and we're going to build our ponds and that's done, we would totally miss the mark where in some cases, yes, we're going to use equipment. In some cases, it's going to be done almost entirely by local labor. In some cases, you know, we're going to have these very specific parameters to design around. And this is where, you know, it becomes really important to understand the people and the landscape that you're working for and with. I wonder for you guys with this recent project, what were some of the key context decisions that helped inform the things that you guys did, either that the landscape was telling you or the history of that landscape or the people, the stewards of that landscape? Yeah, there were a few. So so one thing that was really important for us at the beginning was also really interesting, our discussions um, with the two uh, owners there is we were really pushing on like, okay, what do you want to do with this land? Because at the beginning, basically, they reached out and were like, okay, can you do a water design for our business? Like, yes, of course. And then we, we had to kind of keep pushing. It's like, okay, but do you see this more as pasture? Like, do you want to focus on animals? Or do you want to go more into agroforestry? Or do you want to also do some cropping, alley cropping, different enterprises? Or maybe you just want to rewild things and just have a beautiful green landscape. Because we, we basically have to explain it's like, depending on what you want to do with this land and where you see it, our design will be completely different. So that was really interesting in the process. And what I really loved about it is also that now with them, we're going to work kind of long term. So we're developing the, the concept together and they also really like experimentation. So that was really cool that we're now saying like, okay, we have one priority is having enough water for the animals throughout the year. So that's amazing. So that, tells us, okay, we need some kind of water bodies that have enough water to just feed them. And also we need pastures that need some water. Also maybe 
little bit of tree systems. And the main thing there is because it's such a brittle environment, there is a lot of rain in winter. And we were luckily there just after rain. And you see these rivers just flowing off the land. And then you know what it will look like in August. And it just hurts so much knowing like, hey, if this water could stay on the land in August, this would not be a brown desert. So that's another thing realize, okay, let's try to keep as much of the of the winter rains on there, either in the ground as infiltration, on water bodies, terraces, all these different systems. So that that is a really interesting process. And also together with them, we said, let's build small kind of experiments of the ideas we have. So let's build a smaller water body with a key, maybe infiltration basin without like a proper tied in key. Let's do some terraces. Let's try different features observe it and then see, okay, where do we get the best return of investment of our, of our time and energy? And then next year we see, oh, okay, this worked really well. So let's do more of these. Let's do a bigger one of these. And so it's kind of this, this process of how we want to develop it together, which I really love this approach. Instead of let's go in, let's spend all the money at once. And then one year later realize, oh, that was stupid, but now it's here. So we can't undo it. Yeah. <laughs> how was it for you, Oliver? No, that was a really good overview of that aspect of the context. Another big thing that's come up in our communications is that regulations around what you are and not allowed to do on farmland, especially in their case on farmland that is under kind of natural space zoning called REN in, in Portugal, is extremely opaque. And they have done a fantastic job on their side from running around trying to speak with lawyers, regulators in the area, people who manage these types of licenses and, and permits, and they can't get straight answers even from those people. And unfortunately, that's surprisingly common, at least in the Iberian Peninsula, where Nick and I have primarily worked on these types of projects. But I also hear it from so many other places that I have you know, contacts or other people who I know closely that work there, is that even the people who are in charge of enforcing these things barely know how they work. And I don't know whether that's on purpose or just, you know, pure or bureaucratic management. So working together to figure this out and as well, doing very small things that if they were to come by and say, nope, sorry, this is illegal. You have to take them down. It wouldn't be a major hit. And we could still kind of pivot and do something along with it anyway, is going to probably define the way that we experiment and put things in on this land. And the fact that they're open to that, they understand this, they're working along with us to, to figure it out and, and run these experiments is really an ideal way to, to navigate this. And we hope to be able to build learnings from this that can inform not only other projects, but that we can use to share with other water workers so that they don't have to butt up against these same issues as, as most of us do at this moment. And I think that's going to be probably pretty similar in a lot of places that people work. And being aware of that is something that we've really built an understanding of recently. Yeah, I think that's a big challenge, but there's also really nice, easy ways to navigate it. And I'll say, you know, coming up with my mentor, Seth Fultzer, who is the person who navigates it with a 20 pound sledgehammer. <laughs> it's actually been a lot of learning from our students and seeing the ways that they navigate it. In a lot of examples, it's really important to scale these actions. You know, no one's going to give you permission to do this right from the beginning. But if you can do a little bit and then bring a regulator out to show the little bit that you did, 
I, we just had a webinar with some other um, practitioners that, you know, they did work along the creek just with kids a little bit. And then they brought the regulator out and said, well, we'd like to do more of this. And they, you know, kind of looked at it and said, well, if you just do more like that, that's okay. That's fine. That's great. And we've had the same thing in the United States where people do these beaver dam analogs. They have regulators out. And, you know, they were done beyond what was allowable, which actually enabled that water to reconnect with the floodplain, which then the regulator loved. And they were like, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what this should be doing. Keep doing it just like this, where if you tried to get the permission right away, they just say, no, 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 you're going to make a mess. Don't do that. If you do a little bit so that you can then show the person, now you kind of open the floodgates to be able to do more and more of it. Uh, in a way that doesn't, you know, put you at exposure and risk of all sorts of troubles. Yeah. One last thing to build on that. There's also the option of working directly with the regulators to figure out what they're trying to get done and piggyback on their own goals. My own example of this right now is that the forestry technicians of the natural park that my land borders have been working on trying to I guess, improve the health or restore some of the function of the water body that runs right in front of my house. And I started up a conversation with them very early on when we came out here. And they actually invited me to put in proposals for their next round of applications for funding. And I'm currently in the final stages of having an approval of doing some induced meandering and terracing within the river to help to reestablish the, well, the previous level of the water, which is severely degraded at the moment, and with the longer term vision of helping to reconnect it with its original floodplain. And there is a possibility of getting paid to do this, which quite frankly, I would do for free because this is my land and I'm interested in, in the health of it improving. But by having these conversations, by figuring out where my goals tie in with what they're trying to accomplish, there's actually a possibility that this could be part of my work and open up other doors for working at this scale at, at public works projects just by, you know, not going into it with an antagonistic mindset. So there is a lot of possibilities here, even though most of us would love to be able to go around them and, and circumnavigate a lot of the regulations. When you start to see them as opportunities, I think there's a lot of incredible things that can come up, especially with collaborations. But so building on something else that both of you kind of touched on in your answers before is knowing the possibilities of what can happen in, in these contexts. The reason why we get this context information, the reason why we read this landscape is so that we can make adapted and appropriate choices for all of these wide considerations that we mentioned. And this is one of the biggest points of value that I've taken both from your course, Zach, and also from the wide range of resources that are advocated and shared within the community around it. It is the antidote to the thing that I think gets on all of our nerves, which is, you know, you take a permaculture class, they tell you that swales are good, and then everybody just goes around putting swales on everything because there's a very limited knowledge of what's possible and the criteria by which to evaluate that. How do you go about understanding what the range of possibilities are and you know, what are some of the new things that you're hoping to expand your own skill set and your knowledge about at the moment? Uh, great question. And for me, it's all about results. You know, so one, one of our office hours recently, someone asked why water? And I had to think about it for a second, but it's really just because it's what delivers results. If you see the projects that achieve amazing things, they usually focus 
early on on water, whether it's water cycle function, water bodies, land restoration, all these different pieces. And so it's really important to see, I think this is where we get into so much trouble. When we're aspiring towards theory, we have a really easy time of just missing the reality. When we're aiming towards something that's proven in reality, we have a viable target. So whether it's these projects in India, in Africa, in Australia, in the United States, in Europe, there's examples all over the world. We try and highlight them with water stories, but it's you know just a drop in the bucket. There's probably thousands for every one that we have a film about. And so it's really, this is where, you know, for me as a lifelong learner, I love to go and learn from someone who's doing something radically different than how I would do it. That I look at it like, ah, and kind of scared about it. But then you see the results they achieve. And that's what tells you, does this have value or does this not? Does, you know, what does the landscape look like after five years, after 10 years? And this was, you know, the big aha moment for me was going to SEP's places and working with them and seeing a landscape that hadn't been managed for 10 years and food was falling on the ground everywhere, just raining fruit from the sky. And that was when it went, oh, okay, all humans could be happy living in this way. We have, it's not a production question, it's a relationship question and whether we're tying in with that. So I think, you know, learning from these different examples of how people are doing things, there's some things like Peter Marshall is doing in Australia that's achieving amazing results. That's very different, very different strategy where he's using these fashion bundles of biogeotextile and woody debris and stuff like that. Um, that, but it works. And so you can't argue with results. It's, you know, you got to look at people's results, people's projects, and that's what tells you. And if you can go to a landscape like Peter Marshall's that used to have one tree and a you know ten foot ten meter deep erosion gully running through the middle of it, and you go to it now, and it's full of water bodies and full of trees and full of forests, and doesn't burn. It sw fire swirled around it for two months, and it didn't burn. And so you can say, okay, that person they have something, they know what they're doing. Let's learn from them. Let's elevate them. Let's highlight them. Uh, and there are these examples all around the world of people in different situations, different contexts, like we we're talking about using the tools that they have to help achieve what what they're gaming for. And a lot of times they don't know what will be possible. I think this is one of the big things working with SEP is people just don't see the possibilities. I didn't see the possibilities before learning from them. You kind of have to have your mind cracked open to see the possibilities to then understand okay, it's this way now, but it wasn't always this way and it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, I wonder for you guys, how do the examples and results that you see impact the possibilities that you see as you walk around a landscape and learn it? Yeah, there's quite a few one. I think what, what, what I noticed is how developed the more I know about different practitioners doing things slightly differently. So when you, when you come into the world of this whole regeneration or permaculture or whatever, and the first project you see, this is like, okay, this is what you do. Uh, and so my example is like, okay, you build swales. And so you just do swales everywhere and then everything is green. And so as I learned more, it's like, ah, maybe they're not the best solution always, or they're not working everywhere. And then as we worked a lot uh, with climate farmers, 
there with hundreds of farmers and then noticing it's like, oh, okay, in a farming context, it doesn't make any sense to work fully on contour because it's super inefficient. So going more into like a key line patterning actually makes sense. And then also there we have so many people who work with animal management. And there, that's also one thing that we spoke about with Darren Dorothy and in Regrarians. There's so much great stuff where it's like, sometimes you really don't need earthworks. You just need really good animal impact. And then maybe you, you plant a forest and it's way better than doing earthworks for water harvesting. And so I think for me, that was the biggest thing, like learning about all these different approaches. And then when you come to a landscape, it's like, hey, of course we can build you a dam and it will be nice, but maybe that's not the best use of our time and energy because here we have this different approach and try this first. And if that doesn't work, then we can still do earthworks, but let's see what the landscape kind of wants to have and then experiment with that. And I think that together with one thing that the, the course with you was so strong on this model building, that for me was also the biggest game changer of let's just build a tiny version of this, see how it performs. And then, okay, let's, let's go with that one. For example, here on, on my property, I built this tiny little dam. Like really, it's just two square meters. I just wanted to test the concept. I realized, wow, I need so much compacted clay to build a key. Where do I get all that? And first I thought I have way too much of it. And then in a different spot where I wanted to build, I'm just noticing I can pour as much water as I want. It's just so porous. Like, I will never do a proper water body there. And then I have this other spot close to where my gray water comes out and where I'm filtering it. And there just stands there for so long. It's like, wow, there's so much clay here. So I'm now changing my plan. I'm going to build a dam closer to that area and a little bit of a pond because it just makes way more sense. And so I think that for me are the two things, like learning about as many approaches as possible, building small models, and then let's experiment and see what the landscape wants to have in that. Yeah, but I don't know, like it's, it's always been a little bit different for you. Oliver, but is it, what, what would you say? Is it different approaches or models? Well, what do you see as, as kind of the more powerful approach to it? Man, to all the stuff that you guys mentioned is super valuable. I love playing around with little models to test out things. One thing that I would add to the conversation is that, and this is an area that I will probably be hoping to expand my perspective and my knowledge into my entire life, is getting reference to what the possibilities really are when we have never lived to see any of them, right? So this concept of baseline reset syndrome is like, you know, every new generation thinks that their reference to what a healthy ecosystem is, is the one that they grew up with. Like I remember, you know, bugs splattering on the windshield when we would go on car trips and that doesn't happen anymore. No matter how far you drive, I've like never needed to clean a windshield. That's terrifying. However, it was not in a great state in the early 90s when that was happening to me, right? Like that it should not be our reference to what is possible. We as a, as a generation have no idea what the health of the prairies of the United States looked like with 90 million buffalo and God knows how many other species that were managing them with careful and cultural practices from, from the native peoples. Like here in Europe, I'm just starting to understand the concepts and the history of what is possible in this area. And so really expanding our idea of what could be with regeneration, to me, is, is a frontier that we should really all be pushing for. 
We definitely not hit any upper limits in any of the projects that I know of, even the most impressive ones. And we will never reach these within our lifetime or even generations from now. And this is both extremely inspiring, but also a real challenge for me to wrap my head around, like, is my idea of regeneration here limited by my own reference to what is possible? And am I putting upper limits on it with the limitations of my understanding of what could be here? Much like Zach, you were talking about, like wetlands will not just reappear on their own. It really goes and, and kind of gives me confidence that there is room for those of us who are taking active steps in doing this type of work, because you also will get, you know, certain types of conservationist ecologists who are like, no, no, no. The way that we return things to their full potential is just to get people off of them and to leave them to regenerate on their own. And it's like, well, there's so many cases where that's not going to happen without some very careful and uh, heartfelt stewardship from active participants. And so, I mean, we kind of went outside of what I had originally asked on this knowledge of possibilities. But to me, it's one of the most challenging aspects of design and implementation work is like, we're basically going through it blind with a few small lights, which are the knowledge and the references that we have built. And this is where I'm really grateful for the fact that I've been able to travel a lot in my life, even if that just means that I've seen every different flavor of degradation out there, <laughs> because I really don't know where I've been that is a true representation of what is possible or what real abundance looks like. But having that perspective at least gives me a wider range than I would have if I had stayed put or if I you know, hadn't had the incredible opportunities of community and communication with other people around the world would even further limit what I, what I think is possible. So that, yeah, go ahead, Zach. In this shifting baseline, I just want to harp on that a little bit because it's so important. We don't even, most people don't even understand what a real forest looks like. Yeah. You know, if you even in movies, when they show primeval forests, they're showing modern forests as yeah. primeval forests. So all of our concept of forest is a field of trees, basically. You know, it's like a field of corn, but it's trees instead of corn. So we don't even they're understand all the same that. age. They're all the same size. They're all evenly spaced out. That's what a forest is. Way too close, in competition, <laughs> full of disease, full of sickness. <laughs> and the part that really scares me is especially around the flood, drought and fire. Because, you know, even 10, 20 years ago in the American West, it wasn't fire season. And now there's just going to be smoke in the air for three months. And that's in a really short period of time. People have just accepted, oh, there's just going to be smoke in the air and my lungs are going to be struggling for these two months of the year every year. To me, that scares the crap out of me because yeah. we're accepting this very sick, unhealthy, unbalanced state as the new normal because we don't know anything else when in fact you know like you mentioned those shining lights you could argue those shining lights we have are only 10 percent of the potential they've just started going in that direction and yet we're accepting this downward spiral as unavoidable and so i think that's where it's really important i know we're kind of jumping around here but i i think this you know helping share these stories of what's possible to people is so important because if you don't know it and you don't know it's existed you just accept this very disturbed state that's resulting in conflict and violence and water scarcity and this death spiral and that's where 
it, you know, that's why I created Water Stories, just so that more people know these stories because they're amazing. They're inspiring. When people hear them, they want to share them. But, you know, talk to people on the street and not even a hundredth of a percent of the people have heard of any of these. Yeah, definitely. And so now going from that into sort of the the more practical skills, the technical abilities, running and managing projects, operating machinery and all of that kind of stuff. How do we bring this very broad scope and understanding of a holistic perspective into these projects down into, okay, this is how we execute on these. This, this is what we've decided in, in our design. And how do we build those abilities? You know, I think this is one of the things where you just have to learn by doing. I, it's one of the giant glaring weak links in I think all of restoration ecology right now in that there's all sorts of people talking about it, sharing about it, but very few people actually doing it. And it's one of those things that you really can't just learn without doing yourself. And that's why, you know, we, I tried to not have an online course forever because I said, ah, you can't learn online. But once we figured out a way to make it not online, but at home, where people have to do all of these different actions. Now, by the end of that, you have some comfort and familiarity with it, and you know exactly what you need to learn more about. You know, you use the laser level, and it either confuses the heck out of you, or you just got it. And so you know, okay, I'd either need to spend a couple hours practicing with the laser level to get really good at it, or I got this, move on to the next skill. Keep gaining skills. Uh, and this is where, you know, it's been so fun to see I think a lot of times people take the course and they're like, ah, oh, there's all these actions. Why do I have to do all this? I have to give a presentation. Why do they want me to give a presentation? But then when they give the presentation, they get a job from someone in the audience of that presentation. And so we didn't make them give the presentation to do it. We did that because we know it will lead them to that job from the audience member in that. Uh, so it's really where just going through all the steps, reading the land, taking a deep dive, doing site analysis, doing small models, building projects. It, it's one of those things where you can actually learn it a lot quicker at a smaller scale with your hand and with a shovel. All the same compaction levels and everything, you can practice that on a little micro scale, like Nick, your model is a perfect example. One of our favorite things to do with classes, you can learn all the details before you get the big machine involved. Because if you do any of those things wrong with the 20-ton machine, you have big consequences to suffer now. Whereas if you can make all your mistakes on the micro, making these small projects, slowly scaling them up. And so we see people, you know, slowly take on bigger and bigger projects as they go. They'll make a small rain garden in a backyard, then they'll make a larger one, then they'll make a full water body. Then they can do a site analysis on a whole project that's, you know, many hectares. And so it's really just going through, Sepp always says, do something and something happens. Do something and you'll learn something. And I think it's so easy to get stuck in the analysis paralysis. Learning all these skills, they're all tactile things. You can, and it does help a lot to, you know, get some direction to get going in the right way, get the basics, get the things to look for. But at some point, you got to just start doing it to actually gain the skills. So you got to rent the excavator and sit in the machine. And the first three hours, you're going to be horrible and just make it a mess. And that's how it goes. That's the learning process. So really just taking the time and going through the steps, doing the work. Like I'm sure you guys, as a result of this project, 
feel much more comfortable now all of a sudden doing it on an even bigger scale from this relatively low consequence work that you did that still achieves a result for the clients that enables you to scale your experience as you learn. I think it's important. I like to say you want to get your head in underwater, but you don't want to drown. You want to be close enough to the surface that you have to struggle to get back up, but you're not killing yourself in the process. So I, what was that like for you guys going through the process and starting to figure out, you know, what are these skills do we have? What skills do we need to gain more? And I really love that for your guys' project, you were able to bring in other people as well, some from in the Water Stories community, which was just awesome for me to hear. But, you know, you also, you don't need to have all the skills yourself. You can work together in a team. Once you understand what you have and what you don't, you can go find the different connection pieces to make a full whole. So what was that like for you guys in Portugal? Yeah, I think for, for me, it started a bit before Portugal. So I've been really into this water stuff, very, very tiny scale for, I think, like 10 years now, and then always getting a little bit bigger. I think for me, one important step was uh, the work of Brett Lancaster and reading Water Harvesting for Dry Lands. And then I started implementing that on a really small scale. And it's also what I tell students when we're teaching courses and all that, say, you can apply this in one flower pot. Instead of having the soil mound in the middle, you pour water in and everything flows out the side, build a little bit of a basin in there and your water will stay in, you know, like this is the scale it starts and then going out from there. And then for me, it was really through volunteering and smaller projects. So then it's like, okay, you get your first kind of team. So you have more shovels going from one shovel to multiple shovels, then getting the first small excavator. It's like, oh, we can get so much more done. And then slightly bigger excavator and a slightly bigger excavator. So that for me was really, really interesting to see. And also it felt really fair for, for everyone involved this way. So first my work was free because I just wanted to learn and I just wanted to apply. And then I started my first few projects that I did uh, was pay as you can. So I just told the clients like, hey, we just do it afterwards. You just tell me what you think is fair and you pay me, which paid really well, surprisingly. So it was really good grade in the end. And so now, you know, we're establishing our rates and as there are so many projects coming in now, like we kind of need to raise rates a little bit because it's just so much work. And yeah, we have to see how we manage our time because we also want to have some time at our places. And so in Portugal, for me, the biggest, I think, learning was in terms of material management. So that was really something where you can, with a small project, everything is really possible. But then with the machine saying, okay, if we dig it from this place to there and we don't have a big arm, like, how can we reach? How can we bring it so it's not in the way? How do, how, so we don't have to move it twice. And then when it came to the actual dam building, there we're really glad that we worked um, with Dave, who also took the water stories course, and he had built a few uh, more dams than us. So it was really nice from his point. It's like, yeah, if we want to build it up to this height, here we don't have enough material. So, so getting this sense of like, if this is the height we want to reach, we need this much material. And then it needs to come from there and to not move it twice. And then where do we store the topsoil in between? Oh, and I think this is kind of the stuff you just can get it from doing it. Like it's as you said, I mean, in the course, you, you go into it and we learned a little bit, but then on the ground, it's just, you have to do it and do it. Um, and I think that, that for me was the most interesting and what I really want to get good at now is this efficiency of machine and everyone involved with the material handling. So how can you make sure that every step is well planned? 
And yeah, I, I don't see another way of getting good at it as just doing it as much as possible with people who are, and that's also what I really like, having people who have a slightly different skill set or who are maybe a few steps further. I'm also really looking forward, like Zach, when I hope it works out this summer to work with you in the US or later in the year with you when you're here in Europe. That will just accelerate everything. But yeah, those are, those are the kind of things for Yeah, for me... Maybe it's a little different from others because I had a pretty extensive background in managing construction sites, directing operators and doing pretty big projects. Not always as, you know, the main manager, but it's something that I've been around through a lot of my career, even in shipping. And so for me, the, the pivot over was pretty easy. That being said, the things that helped me the most were shadowing more experienced people. And for listeners of this podcast, you'll probably remember the episode that I did when I first went out to Nicaragua and worked with the, the team designer for our, for restoration agriculture design, Mark Shepard's team that was out there. And I mean, his level of experience was, was game changing for me because even though I didn't necessarily need him to show me how to you know shoot a laser level or manage the bulldozer, seeing the way that he kind of designed in real time and the toolbox that he was drawing from was really valuable and that was one thing that i would say for people who are trying to maybe advance in these areas faster than what doing a little basin in a flower pot would allow them to as valuable as all of those small models are make yourself useful to someone who you want to emulate or someone you admire Zach, I know you have experience with this. You talk about it a lot with your work with Seth Holzer and with a few others. Just, you know, find a way to endear yourself to the people that you admire and that you would like to learn from. And they'll bring you along, especially in this, I guess, focus, this regenerative community. People are extremely open to sharing their knowledge, to helping you out on your own journey. And the community around this is extremely valuable. If you tap into that, you will learn faster than any other way. And then, of course, like you were saying, all of the very practical and on the ground activities that are required for moving through this course were another great way for me to just fortify and verify the learnings in real applications on the ground. Now, that's the technical and the practical stuff. Let's go into the very important aspect of the softer skills that really make this work effective. Because I think we can all give examples of people who are very technically skilled and projects fall apart from lack of communication, lack of patience or observation and reflection, or lack of understanding of the dynamics of doing this type of work and, and bringing in stakeholders like that. Zach, maybe talk about how important that has been for you. This is where the rubber meets the road. And if you do this part well, everything else falls into alignment. And if you do this part poorly, everything falls apart. Even if you're doing the best work, the best techniques in the best places, if you don't do this part well, you will fail or hate life or not have happy clients. And this is one of the things that, you know, I think it's so hard to find ways to start unpacking this. And this is what, why for me, it was very important to include in the course, how to manage people, how to manage subcontractors, how to set up your working relationships. Because in so many cases, we just give people the techniques and then we say, go forth and do. And we don't fill in any of the details of how to manage people. And this is where 
you know, it's simple things like under promising and over delivering. If you do that, you will have happy clients every time. If you do the best work in the world, but you over promise, your client's going to be pissed off at the end of it and feel like they got gypped just because you promised too much at the beginning. So it's, there's all these kind of counterintuitive things like under promising and over delivering, where especially when we're starting out, we're trying to get the job. And so we're promising the world, but in the process, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Even if we do a really good job, it's still going to be failure because we promise so much. And this is where, you know, also with the people working for you, you have to under promise and over deliver. You know, if you all of a sudden tack two weeks onto the end of the project and they were all expecting to go home to their families, but now they can't, everyone's going to be pissed at you for the last two weeks of that project. So having really clear communication, I think so many times the issues are solved by clear communication up front. What the, our tendency is there's an undesirable situation that might result in conflict, so we avoid it. And then it comes back and results in a lot more conflict. Whereas if we just approached it right at the beginning, like, hey, we're not finding as much clay as we thought we were going to here. So we're going to pivot and make this as an infiltration basin. If you have that conversation right up front, it's really easy to navigate. If you don't and you're like, ah, we'll just have that conversation later. And then all the work's done and you explain, oh, this isn't a pond. This is an infiltration basin. They're not going to be happy. So leaning into any of those uncomfortable situations and really... I think one of the really important lessons that I got from Sep working with him is that if we want to do good in the world, we need to get past our interpersonal bullcrap. We need to be the bigger person in situations. We need to have thick skin. We need to not take things personally. One of my favorite quotes from the Dalai Lama is it does oneself a great disservice to be offended by the actions of someone else. And everyone, you know, has their own prerogative, has their own ways to go. I remember a, a project in China that I screwed up. I didn't get my visa in time. They sent this nasty email to Sep. He sent it to me and he was like, I want you to go. This is an important project. They they wanted him to send someone else. And he said, you get Zach or you get no one. And he forced me into it, but it was an amazing project. And it was amazing people. Uh, you know, it was a great experience, both for me and them. And they sent a letter afterwards. It's like, ah, oh, this guy's amazing. We were totally wrong. Sorry. But if we're going to let ourselves get bogged down in our interpersonal feelings of things, we're not going to achieve good work. And so I think this is one where in all of these interpersonal relations, I think about who am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? And for me, it's much more about the wildlife and the ecological impact than anything else. So I can take my hurt feelings and just throw them away. And I don't have to retaliate to that little snarky comment by someone working for me. I can just let it roll off my back because we have a greater end goal here. And me getting bogged down in my feelings and emotions isn't going to help the process. So I wonder with you guys, I mean, it sounds like this project was pretty easy, pretty easy with the client, but were there any tense moments that you had to navigate in some way or or what was the key to not having those tense moments? Well, me and Nick um, bicker like an old married couple. So it's often just managing our friendship. That's a bigger hassle than the project itself. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead, Nick. Give her a serious answer. No, I think it was really nice where, where I was really glad that through kind of years of always like team sport, working in teams, all of this, 
like this is very natural because at the project we had many points where even though we all have kind of similar and, and slightly different skill sets so kind of the, the ultimate responsibility of deciding what to do was kind of on my shoulders so if if we screw this thing up i'm going to be blamed so that's why it was a little bit okay i had to kind of make the fine decisions but also what i noticed over the years like my my decisions are never going to be as good as those we make in a group of of skilled people and and so that's why in this process we had usually multiple times a day where we just said okay let's step back let's look at what we have planned let's look at the feedback we got from the landscape and, and from everything is working and let's see what do we think what makes sense here how should we continue what kind of feature should we build and that for me really really helped and there it was also i didn't want to say like hey my initial idea was doing this and because i decided that in the beginning we need to go through with it it was more like okay we we did a bit of a round you know so everyone said like hey what would you do in this situation and why and then together we were like oh yeah my my initial idea was completely stupid it's not going to work here Let, let's see what we did and that way we always got to a point where every one of us was like hey yeah this this makes sense you know because i hate it when when i'm in situations where i'm in charge and i decide something but i know that the others they don't really like that and they think it's stupid but they do it because there's this power dynamic and and that just leads to shitty work and shitty results and they, i really appreciated it that we had this open it's like hey if you think this is a stupid idea please say it and and let's find a better one Uh, and we had that a lot, like with the exact positioning of the feature, which kind of feature. And then most importantly, one initial idea we had was connecting a feature we built last time in one valley with the infiltration basin that we did this time. We wanted to connect it, but it was, I think Oliver pointed it out most strongly, like since we're old married couple, you know, I noticed he wasn't quite happy. So I was like, <laughs> hey, what's wrong? And he said like, hey, I think this is forced. You know, I think we need to force it too much to build a terrace to connect the two features. It was absolutely right. And I think what we went for in the end was most certainly the better decision. And yeah, I, I really, I just love working with others and coming to, to decisions together. But yeah, how, how was it from, from your part in the old married couple? <laughs> well, so for me, there's two things that I always come back to whenever there's tension or difficulties, especially in communication. One, as you guys know, I, I really like to fall back on the holistic context framework from the Savory Institute. Whether or not you use the same language, it's a matter of reconnecting with what the core priorities and the vision for being there is. And one thing that always pulls me out of my own ego and kind of checks me is a phrase that, I mean, if I ever get a tattoo, it'll be this. It's not about you. This is what I always tell myself when I start to feel some little, you know, pains. I'm like, oh, I'm not comfortable. I don't love this. It's like, it's not about you. It's about, for example, in, in, in this project, It's about creating a functional landscape that is resistant to fire so that our client's house doesn't burn down the next time and giving them the best value for the budget that they have for this portion of the project. And then, you know, maybe some sub goals are for us to learn and really understand and do this work as well as possible. And so if I can center on that, if I can remind myself, it's not about me and return to the core motivations for what we're doing and the objectives we're trying to receive, usually that's good enough to get through and accept feedback and, you know, the patience and observation to make good decisions. And look, so there's so much more that we could say about the soft skills required to be effective in this work. And goodness knows it is not unique or specific to water work. This is 
this is life skills we're talking about here. Um, before we go into the next portion, I want to just open it up in case there's any really important uh, abilities, skills, knowledge that you think is worth mentioning here that we didn't cover yet. I mean, I think the teamwork aspect that Nick mentioned too, the more that you can create a positive atmosphere around the whole project. I think one thing that's important to consider is usually our clients are doing this as a dream project, as something that they've been you know, hoping and imagining. And so if it feels like drudgery, you're doing it wrong. Mm. And having fun and celebration and all of those aspects, I, for one, don't do a good enough job of celebrating a project at the end. I'm so exhausted. It's like, ah, okay, I'm going to sleep for 12 hours. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's the part. Celebration. And that's the part that really, yeah, it is for me. But that's the part that really, you know, helps build these into you know, pinnacle experiences in people's lives, which is ultimately a lot of times what they are. And, you know, it's so amazing to have that be your daily job is creating amazing dreamlike experiences for people. And so if we can really do it well, you just end up with the most real meaningful connection that you can have with other people, especially in a working relationship. All right, cool. Well, in that case, let's move on to the next portion, which let's see if I end up regretting this because we are going to now ask Zach, since we just submitted our final module on the course to finish up the professional certification, to give us feedback on the work that we've done up until now and some reviews and some, some points of perhaps more learning or revision that we could use to take forward here and continue on our learning journeys. So Zach, I'll open it up to you. Take this however you want. I feel fairly confident that I have final edit of this episode before it goes out. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but don't hold back. Give us your real thoughts. I mean, you guys overall did a really great job. And one of the things that I really love to see is that you guys learned the lessons already from that project that you did. I think this is one of the big things is we can get people started, but we can't you know, teach you everything that you need to know. We can teach you all the basics and we can teach you enough to keep learning. And so, for example, one of the things that you guys noticed on this property that does sometimes happen is sometimes, you know, whereas you'd usually have the clay down in the valleys, sometimes the clay is up high on the ridges and the landform is such that it's actually washed out of all of the valleys. And it's steep enough in the valleys that it's kind of carried the clay down to lower areas on the landscape. And then you're just left with the clay on the ridges. And so, I mean, you guys even noticed in your, your project submission that more test slices could have helped illuminate that early on. And this is one of the things that's tough because you don't want to turn someone's property into Swiss cheese, <laughs> but you want to get as much information as you can beforehand to do it efficiently. And with all of these things, there's so many judgment calls that you just have to make and learn from and keep going and get better and better each time. And so now, you know, in this case, you guys did some test slices, but after doing the project, you're like, oh, I wish we had done a few more in these spots. And now for the next project, you know, okay, I'm also going to do test slices in these spots because the last time I wished I had done that beforehand. So, I mean, I think you guys did a wonderful job implementing the features that you did look really nice. The spillways look nice. All the nuts and bolts, I think, are really well done. And you guys are already learning the lessons from this process, which that's the key. If you're just trying to 
develop a recipe and then you're going to go around replicating that recipe, you're going to make gross tasting cookies. And what you want is amazing cookies custom crafted to each person in each landscape. And that's where you have to just keep learning, keep unfolding, because you will always see things that surprise you like this landscape where the clay has washed out of the valleys and you look at it from a contour map and it's like, oh, there's all of our great points. But then you get there and you're thinking, how on earth this isn't practical, this wouldn't work. And so the more of that you go through, you know, I think one of the things also that you guys had a really easy setup with this one, which you guys mentioned, is having a really open client that wants to learn through the whole process, that trusts you and that wants to evolve this process through there. I think one of the big things that I saw just as far as areas of improvement is most clients are not that way and you need to be very careful about setting expectations early on. And this is where things like the map beforehand can get you in trouble with a trickier client because they get locked into, okay, this is what they thought. And then when you come and suggest something different, they're thinking, oh, this person doesn't know what they're talking about if they don't understand the details of these things. So trickier clients, you have to be more careful with how much information you give at what point so that you're not misleading them accidentally by giving too much information before you have the info. So I, I love the idea, like for you, Nick, it makes a lot of sense to do these kind of just like rough ideas of what could be possible. But I would try and keep them vague enough where the client doesn't get attached to that. And then if you don't deliver that, they feel like something's gone wrong because that initial process was so different. So that was one piece that I saw. But I mean, you guys did a great job of, you know, using what you had available, getting some real work done, which people love to see as well. I think so many people waste so much money on design and it leaves nothing on the landscape. And if you can do both, to some extent, that's so much better where you're moving the design forward while you're doing projects that then they can see the results of. And, you know, Nick, you were kind of alluding to this before with the master site plan. One of the things that I like to do on a concept plan is leave areas open for future development, especially if you have an area that it could be one thing or it could be another thing, or it kind of has a lot of different ways it goes. I like to leave those areas open so that that client 10 years down the road, when they decide, you know, I love all these ponds. I want more ponds. I want more fish. They can move that in that direction. Or they decide, you know, I want more forestry or I want more areas for animal grazing. So this idea that we have to fill in all the gaps right away, I think it's easier to, you know, leave some flexibility in accounting for that. Um, and I think you guys did a really nice job with that on site and, you know, making sure that that initial plan is the client understands that, you know, this is just like darts on a dartboard, very rough, very conceptual. But, you know, the big lessons you guys are starting to learn with material movements, you know, as you work with different equipment, you're going to see what equipment works best in different areas and how you're kind of limited by your equipment with what features you can do. I think also, as you guys notice, there's this real important staging of projects to run efficiently. And the handwork is really just at the end. And so if you can kind of stage it where you have a lot of equipment work up front and then you get the handwork in at the end where you need it, 
Uh, and like you guys mentioned in your project submission, it would probably make sense to have a second excavator that one of you guys were running while the other is working on laying out other features. So all of that, I think, are you know really good lessons that you guys yourselves identified, which is, that's what this is all about. It's about giving people enough to then continue their own growth and development indefinitely as they learn by doing. You guys shared some of your project reflections with me, but that's obviously not been shared with the listeners. What were some of the biggest lessons you guys had from this project? Yeah, I think we went into that a little bit in, in one of the other podcasts, but yeah, I think for me, those are the, the two things that you also mentioned a little bit. So getting a bit more into, into test slicing, as you said, so finding the balance between Swiss cheese and finding the best spots for different features. I think that that's a big one. And then that together with the material movement and efficiency of people involved. So as an example, I get, I don't know, not, not every week, but maybe every two weeks, someone reaches out over Instagram and asks if they can help me with projects. So I, I get all these people who want to, who want to help and, want to say yes but as we've noticed with this project now since we also had a volunteer on site who's a, a nelson who's also in the climate farmers community and we've been in contact for a long time and it worked out with him so he was there but the issue is that at the beginning of the project there were kind of i think at times there were four or five of us who were all really into this kind of work and one excavator and i mean apart from just standing there and making plans there's not much you can do, but like we did all the lasering we could do. We marked all the lines. We did all the planning. But at some point, we're just like, okay, now we need to wait until we can armor the spillway or, or do kind of finishing touches. Yeah. And so, so that it's like, okay, how can we do this? That when we have volunteers, we only get them on the last day, for example, or these kind of things. So that, that I think was the, uh, the biggest for me. Yeah. So for me... I actually want to bring attention to a lot of the other work besides this final project. I mean, there was a huge amount of value that I didn't expect getting into the course. I really thought that it was mostly going to be technical information on how to install features, how to run projects, how to assess the land, which it definitely had. But there were really valuable takeaways for me, of which I have done some of in the past, but there was a new emphasis put on things like advocacy things like community outreach, things like really getting to understand where your water comes from to begin with. And it helped me and gave me the extra push to do a lot more research in specific areas that I wasn't probably going to make the extra effort to, to begin with. I started to research the whole history of how the watershed that I'm a part of is has been impacted and changed over time in this region of Catalonia in Spain where I live. And how the tributary to the larger river of this area called the Ter, of uh, which the river that runs right in front of my house is, is a part of, where that comes from, the industries and the, the farming and stuff upstream for me, as well as the things downstream that my actions on this farm can affect. And making that a focal point and, and making sure that it's an important aspect of the reflections and the requirements for getting to the next stages for me was, is like, I always knew that was valuable, but it took me taking this course to really push me to do it thoroughly. Right. I had a cursory knowledge, but especially for the fact that I did not grow up in this country. I am foreign to this land and it is a big uphill learning curve 
to assimilate, to understand the context of where I live. And let's face it, a lot of people don't even do this for places that they've lived their entire lives, you know. So that has been such a valuable part of me becoming the steward of the place that I now live in that I probably would have waited longer to bother to do. And so just that, like whether you go for a professional certification through this course or whether you take it in, in smaller steps or stop at, say, the advocacy or the, the landowner levels, this is a big part of building awareness and understanding of where you are within the water cycle in the watershed that you are a part of. And that to me was maybe one of the biggest takeaways from this process. Yeah, for me, one thing I just remembered is from one of the first exercises in the course, it's a sit spot exercise. So where we're asked to sit in kind of the same spot for a long time and observe. And so for the listeners who don't know, I live on Tenerife and we really don't get a lot of rain here. And now in the last year, we only got, I think a total of 70 millimeters. So we really got nothing this year and everything is, is brown and dark. and I was sitting at a sit spot and I was observing for, for a few days in a row. And then I kind of noticed that this one spot, it was just too green. So everything was just brown and integrated. And there was this one spot that was just way too green. And it didn't make any sense in the wider landscape. And then I went there and I realized, oh, there was a connection of one of my pipes and it was leaking. So it wasn't a big leak. It was just the tiny drip that was coming out. But it was enough to turn that spot into a greener spot. And it was just through this exercise that I found this leak because I started observing and said, this pattern doesn't make any sense. And I think those were the kind of exercises where at the beginning there, there's somewhere I'm thinking like, hey, I just want to learn how to go with excavators and build cool dams. But there's all these other exercises like, oh, this makes so much sense. Like now also... As Oliver said at the beginning, I can't go hiking without thinking like, oh, <laughs> here the path is eroded. If they would have done a little bit of this there, they could have directed the water there and the path would still be good. And so it's like this kind of thing that just happens, I can't switch it off anymore. And yeah, I cannot recommend this cause enough as uh, I think everyone knows who knows me a little bit. And these are the parts that are so essential to making real good practitioners. Both of the things that you guys are touching on, if you know how to do all the techniques, but you're not understanding the landscape, you're not taking the time to sit there and be still. And humans, we're so, we need to be doing something. It's like, we can't do that unless if someone tells you, go outside, be quiet and sit still, and then you can do it and learn these lessons. And similarly, Oliver, with the regional restorations plans, with the story of your watershed, if we're just applying techniques without understanding those things, what are we doing here? Because we don't even have a base level understanding to actually be a good practitioner in that context. And these are the things that prepare you, you know, for one, I love reading them, but that's not why we make people do them. But, you know, yours in particular, Oliver, were really well done. And the thing is, this gives you all of the framing to now talk with the regional authorities about doing something along the river. And you have the full context of what's happened to this river. What's the history of it? Why it's in this state? And all of that gives you the foundation to stand upon so that you're not just someone that's new to your area with no context of the area who's suggesting all these crazy things. You can teach the people there about the history of this river now, in many cases, probably sometimes or in some ways better than they themselves know it. And that now gives you the foundation to work from where 
you can, you know, be a real point of outreach and knowledge in your community where people say, you know, they're not saying, oh, that guy is just digging holes all over his land. It's, oh, that guy really understands the history of this river and the history of this landscape and how things are changed. And now you put context to all those techniques and actions. I think there's so many people that do our course that kind of struggle with those early pieces where they're like, I just want to learn how to move the excavator and do the things. But if you don't understand the place, if you don't take the time to connect with it and learn from it, you're never going to, you could have all the best techniques and they're going to go wrong. I can't tell you how many permaculture projects I see where I'm just looking at it like, this is not something anyone's going to want to replicate. You know, when someone else comes to this landscape, they're not going to say, oh, this is beautiful. I want to do this. They're going to say, what is this? What are you doing here? Why does it look like this? And so really, you know, unpacking our connection and our relationship to place, to the plants, to the animals, to everything on these landscapes is an essential part. And it's one of the things where I'll say it's worked much better than I anticipated. It's created practitioners much more quickly than I've anticipated. I thought, you know, it would take, you know, for me working with SEP, it probably took three to five years before I really was good and knew what I was doing. And I feel like people like yourselves, you know, you started our class less than two years ago and are doing this professionally now for others, well, competently, confidently, and so that we can bring people that far forward along their journey. And it's not that we're bringing people, we're just supporting people to bring themselves. You know, the, you guys were doing the learning on your landscapes, the sit spots, the understanding of the watershed. We just give the prodding to get people going in that direction. Yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap this up now. So Moving forward, for people who are interested, you guys are just about to relaunch the courses that we we described right now, and there's a number of different ways for people to get involved and jump on board with the learning journey. Tell us about the steps that they can take. Yeah, so we're just opening up, or we recently opened up and are going to start the next round of our advanced course. This year, we're only going to do one course. It'll start at the end of March, March 31st, so people can enroll up till then. We have a really nice early bird deal for the end of this month, and we'll have some other packages available, but we have both this advanced offering, which is what you guys both did, which is very much a class component. Everyone's going through the course together. There are live office hours with me. You have a graded workbook. You get certification. It's really our hands-on training program. And then we also offer all of the same content available at an at-your-own-pace option called Essentials where people can join that at any time, but there's no class, there's no office hours, there's no certification. It's, you just, you get all of the same content, uh, but none of the one-on-one -on -one support. And so I think for people that are really ready to step into this in some way or another, that group feel really helps. It helps, you know, in this timeline release where you kind of have to keep up or we try and get you to keep up. And that's oftentimes... Uh, the prodding that you need to do the things to then get the learning out of those experiences. It's really, you know, I think we help create experiences for learning, but the people themselves are doing the learning on those experiences or uh, through those experiences. Yeah. And so I think, you know, if anybody out there is listening and are living through or observing cycles of drought and fire and flood and all of these symptoms out there and are feeling kind of helpless 
it doesn't have to be like this. We can fix these things. We do need all hands on deck. We do need people to learn about this in an integral way. We do need everyone to build skills and knowledge around how to participate actively in this. But there are solutions. They can happen within a shorter period of time than what it would take to sequester all of the world's carbon, for example. You know, you, you can be the catalyst for getting out of these cycles and finding a new trajectory to a new possibility. Nick? Yeah, and I think also it's, it's really motivating to see that this is the kind of work that is so demanded and so needed going forward. And so just the other day, I got a message, I think I already sent it to you, Oliver, where, where someone reached out um, on Instagram and was like, hey, I'm, I'm really interested in this water management for my farm, but I just don't have the budget to bring Zach out. Would it be possible for you to visit my place and walk around it and, and see what we can do together? Say like, hey, yes, of course. And I think this is the kind of beautiful thing that because of the cause, you can spread your knowledge to more of us so we can slowly get better and, well, not sure if we can ever reach reach your level, but in a different different style. And it's nice to see that. And I think the greatest thing for me is at the beginning, I was just getting started with this kind of doing, working by myself on this. And so for me, the cause was really expensive, but I was like, okay, I really want to do this. It's probably worth it. And now the cause had paid for itself so many times already. So it's like, ah, that was the best investment because now I can do this full time and I don't need to just sit and do an office job that I don't want to be doing. Yeah. And for everyone listening, if you have any questions from the student perspectives, yeah, just reach out to, to Oliver and I. We are really happy to, to answer everything. Yeah, there's so, so much need for this. It's wild. And I, you know, I really think, Nick, that all of you guys are going to far surpass me. I, that's what I want. That's what we're trying to create here. And that's also why we leave the doors open through the whole training for people to develop things in the way that's best for them. It's not that you should copy and paste what I'm doing exactly, but figure out the best way to work with others who you want to be working with, what type of connections you want to be making with them. And those are the things that are going to lead you to a custom crafted life for yourself that is really fulfilling. You know, I think one of the things that's so hopeful about this is the way that it scales up and down as well. You know, if we can really get everyone in the world doing this, we can restore the whole water cycle. We can restore deserts. We can make the whole world beautiful. But if just you on your own property is doing it, you can make your own abundant, beautiful, green oasis that no matter what's happening around you, you have food, you have water, you have a basic, stable microclimate. And so that's one of the things that's really powerful and actionable. We can do it all together and create this huge transformation, or we can do it on our own and still achieve real results. It's not that we all have to participate to achieve results. And that's why people keep getting grabbed by this. Is It's something actionable. We can do immediately. You see the results after the first rain. And that's how these community efforts get built because they see, oh, wow, that worked. And, you know, this is uh, water stories all came from a time when uh, Sepp said some very nice things about me. But then he said there needs to be hundreds or thousands of you. Millions would be better. And this is really important that we have all of these people that are able to help create these because when you do this in one area when people see the results all the neighbors want it and then their neighbors want it and we see you know once we create one big project in one area we just get a time and time again from that region more and more people interested so we really have this 
new field that people don't yet know it's a possibility. It's like the light bulb. No one wanted the light bulb when they all had candles and they didn't know what the light bulb was. And so there's this amazing potential for thousands or even millions of people to be doing this as their profession, as their livelihood in their local community, creating the interest for clientele from the projects that they do and the way that it just kind of snowballs and gets rolling. And before you know it, like you guys were just saying, you have to raise your rates just to have less work. So you're like, there's too many projects coming in and they're all amazing. I don't want to say no to any of them. And so the easiest way to say no is to just slowly increase your rates till and yeah, and you can always, you know, still volunteer for the projects that you really care about. But now you're choosing where to put your soul time, your volunteer time. And so it's a really wonderful position to be in where, and, you know, I think this is going to be true for at least the coming decade, if not the many coming decades. It's a great time to be working in water because the water issues are just getting more and more extreme, more and more talked about. Water conflict is starting to spread all around the world. And it's a really amazing time to be able to provide this antidote to the environmental despair that we see everywhere else. Yeah, to everybody on the Iberian Peninsula, if you want job security, don't go work for the government, get into water. <laughs> That's the safe bet. All right, gentlemen, this has been an awesome conversation. I know we're going to check in regularly and share project stories and learnings as we go along. And I really look forward to those as well. But for now, I'm going to put all of the links to the offerings that you mentioned, Zach, in the show notes for this on the website, as well as the links on the social media sites that go with the podcast. So again, thank you guys so much. I look forward to catching up again soon. Awesome. Talk soon. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thanks once again to Zach, especially for being such a great mentor to me and Nick along our journeys. And of course, Nick, I have learned so much from him as well and his incredible intellect and growth in this space as well. Like I said at the beginning, if you are interested in pursuing your own role as an advocate or as a water worker in any way, shape or form, I highly recommend you check out the links that I will have at regenerativeskills.com in the show notes for this episode and in the bio on our Instagram where you can sign up for the different educational offerings on water stories completely for free. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.